Our reading for today is from John 11, verses 55 through to chapter 12, concluding on verse 19. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple area, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the feast at all? But the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone found found out about found out where Jesus was, he should report it so that they might might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus arrived in Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was amongst, among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he, he used to help himself to what he was put into, put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. The next day the great crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes to the name, in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, and as it is written, Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion, see your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realise that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Thanks, Ray. I'm going to pray and ask God to help us before we take a little bit of a closer look at that passage. Gracious Father, thanks for the Bible. Thank you for particularly this Gospel of John. So... Uh, well preserved for us uh, these many years so that we might be reading it in our own language and studying the life of Jesus and his claims, uh, the claims of the eyewitnesses that saw him uh, do and say all that he did.
may these records pierce our hearts and our minds uh, by your spirit that we might be moved to think more about Jesus, grow more to love him and to have a stronger faith in him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, A while ago, my optometrist uh, recommended that I get a separate pair of reading glasses, so I I did. And thanks to our own uh, Tony Perkins, uh, our glasses frames extraordinaire, uh, I landed on this bright yellow pair. They are awesome. Thanks, mate. You're the cat's pyjamas. Now, what I found out about these glasses uh, is that they are totally polarising. Excuse the pun. Uh, People either love them, uh, so much they want to lick them, uh, or they're a joke. They think they're a joke that belongs in a dress-up, a kid's dress-up box. Uh, But what nobody expects is how sophisticated and cutting-edge they really are. Uh, Apart from the tasty yellow colour, they have a unique swivel arm action. Look at that. Uh, Yeah. And, And the uncanny ability to make everyone feel better about themselves. And that's a little bit like Jesus in our passage uh, today because he's not what anyone is expecting uh, and he polarises people into loving, either loving him or hating him, which is where we're going in the passage today. First to see that Jesus is the powerful but humble king come to die for all people and second as such our response is to adore him. So firstly, uh, the humble king Come to die for us. And John sets this up by telling us uh, the week leading up to Jesus' death is the week many Jews went up to Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover. Now the Passover was an important festival to remember and celebrate God saving the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt by many and various plagues. You might have uh, be familiar with this story. Uh, the last and greatest plague being the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. But God made a way for the Israelites to save their firstborn. They were to take a spotless lamb, uh, kill it, take the lamb, the blood of the lamb, and then smear it on the door frames of their houses so that when the angel of death goes throughout the land that night, it would see the blood of the lamb and pass over the house. Uh, and not take the firstborn that was in that house. And in this way, we see the, the Passover lamb was the substitute life, the life taken and displayed in place of those in the house for which it died to save, right? And this was the final plague that led to the king of Egypt finally letting the Israelites go. So to remember this great rescue way back then, the Jews... Uh, were to celebrate the Passover every year. And amongst other things, each household would take a spotless lamb, they'd kill it, uh, they'd eat the whole lamb together one night. But before, the week before that happened, they'd ceremonially prepare themselves for it. And so it's genius that John then includes this story of Mary pouring perfume on Jesus' feet in this same week, which Jesus interprets as preparation for his death and burial as he says in verse 7 it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial now Mary didn't know she was doing this it's unlikely anyone suspected Jesus was going to die soon but Jesus did and so 
It's no accident then John tells us as the Jews ceremonially prepare for the Passover, the Passover lamb, a big part of that, Jesus is being ceremonially prepared as the Passover lamb, the spotless one to die in the place of his people, to save people from sin and death. And that amazingly, he's going to do this as the Passover lamb, uh, as the, the promised king and messiah, both at the same time which is where the next bit in the story takes us. As Jesus uh, chooses to ride on a donkey into Jerusalem while people uh, cheer him on and praise God in the words of Psalm 118. As we read in verse 13 of the passage, they took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the King of Israel. Hosanna just means praise the Lord. Now, Psalm 118 is all about uh, where part of this is quoting uh, these crowds uh, the crowd is quoting from is all about the goodness of God saving uh, his people and calling on him to save them again blessing those who come into Jerusalem celebrating his salvation but in Jesus day uh, many years later the crowds cheering him on while saying this see him coming into Jerusalem as the king of Israel they come to save uh, come to save the, the, the people in a political and military sense come to take Israel back from the Romans but Jesus puts his own spin on it by coming into Jerusalem, not on a fancy war horse, not in a chariot, but on a young, a young donkey. This move both puts the brake on the crowd's political aspirations and advertises what kind of king he is, as he looks to fulfil what the prophet Isaiah said 500 years earlier about the promised king, about the promised Messiah, as John notes in verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey, he sat on it, as it is written in, in Zechariah, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. And the context for that quote back in Zechariah, it's fascinating. In Zechariah chapter 9, uh, we're told the promised king is humble, verse 9. He'll stop military action, not start it, verse 10, and he'll bring world peace and he'll be connected to the blood of God's covenant which sets people free. In verse 11, uh, it's a genius move then that Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a young, don- a young donkey uh, in the lead up to the Passover. He's dropping hints left, right and centre what kind of king he is, humble, bringing peace by setting people free as God promised by God, as promised by God in his covenant blood. But nobody picks this up uh, until he rises from the dead, as John uh, notes in verse 16. Nonetheless, this, this side of the cross, this side of him dying and rising from the dead, along with his disciples back then, we know Jesus as the humble king come to give his perfect life to save people the world over from sin and death. There's a, uh, a metalhead artist called uh, Devin Townsend uh, who was the front man for an old metal band called Strapping Young Lad who, uh, who's known for some of the loudest, heaviest most insanely screamy metal tracks ever written. And uh, the last thing that you'd expect him to cover is Silent Night. But in 2020, he did. He covered Silent Night. And it is intense. It's an intense listen. Not because he goes all screamo in it, or even because he dials up the dirty guitars and throws in a double kick, but precisely because he doesn't. It's a very gentle easy listening version 
of Silent Night. But because it's Devin Townsend doing it, at every pause, there's a pause right in the middle of the song, you think, okay, he's going to break out here. Uh, he's going to do suddenly turn up at this wall of sound and do some scream out, and he doesn't. And in that moment, it's even more powerful. Restrained power. It's unexpected. And, and more powerful in some ways. And I reckon there's something of that here with Jesus. Even though he's been perfumed for burial by a kind woman and downplaying his kingship by coming into town on a young donkey, it, it's like Devon Townsend singing Silent Night. Because Jesus has just smacked down death itself by raising Lazarus. I can't think of a bigger flex than that, can you? <laughs> it's like a massive guitar chord at 100 decibels. There's little doubt he could smack down all his opponents with just a few extra words, swoop in Jerusalem, take the throne and the world by storm, but instead he plays Silent Night. A humble king coming to save people by loving them to the tune of his own death. Which is totally unexpected, given who he is and what he can do. And so wonderfully more impressive and admirable and moving. Which is why we should adore him. As our humble, powerful king who loves us to death and beyond, we should adore him. Not like the Pharisees who are afraid of his growing fan base, afraid he'll bring the Romans down on all the Jews, including them who are currently pretty happy with their way of life. So they fret in verse 19. See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Uh, In his power and his popularity, Jesus is a threat to them and their way of life, but they've completely ignored the nature of the things that he's been doing when he's been exercising his power. He heals a lame man. He feeds thousands of people on a tidbit. Heals a man born blind. Raises a man from the dead. He's not flexing here to destroy his enemies in a gaudy shower of stinking death and destruction. He's being compassionate and loving and caring. To believe he's sent by God, as he said he was, then is to believe that God is like this. And that he can be trusted. Even when he does things you don't like. Or says things that rub you up the wrong way. But Pharisees, they can't handle this. Jesus is breaking their laws, making outrageous statements about himself, things that they they just won't consider, and so they can't see him as someone to trust. Instead, they see him as someone to to get rid of. And there are many like that in our world today. They can't deny Jesus did some good things, but they don't like what he says about something, other things like sex and hell, just to name a couple. And so threatened by him, they they, they, they try to get rid of him. Make sure he doesn't come up in conversation, mock all those who believe in him, co-opt the power of the state to silence him. But this is not only to misunderstand Jesus, the one who truly loves them, it's to set themselves up against the only one who can truly save them, the only one who can truly keep them safe and give them a good life for all of eternity. So that's not how to respond to Jesus. Not like the Pharisees. And certainly not like uh, the crowds at the beginning of this passage either, who seemed quite enthusiastic to see Jesus turn up. So in verse 56, we read earlier, they kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple courts. They asked one another, what do you think? Is he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders and anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. Now, maybe this is a bit of an unkind reading from me, but these people are hanging around the temple. They seem like they're less interested in Jesus himself and more in having 
uh, him having it out with the religious leaders, like they're up to watch a fight, uh, to see a spectacle. And I wonder if that's how some now treat Jesus, see him as, a, as good for making a spectacle, as something exciting to, to watch or to talk about, even entertaining. So they like to read all the fights between the faith heads and the atheists over Jesus and God, or listen to comedians who are particularly gifted at having a go at either faith heads or atheists, or only go to those juicy bits in the Bible, blood, sex and tears, but never thoughtfully read it to know Jesus personally. And never really follow through on finding out what exactly he wants people to believe and how to live. Because they're only interested in Jesus for as much of a spectacle and entertainment he can bring them. So, that's not how to respond to Jesus. Not like the Pharisees, and not like crowds here, and not like the crowds later either, who wave their palm branches while cheering on Jesus on. Because at the time... Uh, Palm branches were a pretty politically charged symbol. Around 170 years ago, uh, before that, so before Jesus, a Jewish family, the Maccabees, successfully led an army of Jewish rebels against the ruling Syrian powers at the time. They re-established proper worship in the temple and they drove the Syrians completely out of Jerusalem and this victory was celebrated by the Jews at the time with music and the waving of palms. Also, Palms, they appear on the coins made by the Jews resisting Roman rule later on, like this one. So the waving of palm branches here with Jesus, it's a a not so subtle move to co-opt him into their political hopes and aspirations, hopes of re-establishing the glory of the nation of Israel. But as has already mentioned, Jesus resists this, He he pushes back on this and so maybe we need to be careful too not to co-opt Jesus for our political agendas and aspirations. Many years ago, before the same-sex marriage plebiscite, many churches from various different denominations found themselves strongly uniting around the no same-sex campaign, marriage campaign, no same-sex marriage campaign. It wasn't the gospel uniting them. That's not what brought them together. It was a political campaign. Now, there's nothing wrong with getting on board with a political campaign, but let's be careful not to assume Jesus is on our side of politics and so demonise all those who are on the other side of politics. After all, Jesus came in Jerusalem to the cries of blessed is the King of Israel to save the Romans just as much to save the Jews. So that's not how to respond to Jesus. Not like the Pharisees, not like the crowds at first or later, and not like Judas Iscariot. As we see him... In this story, have a go at Mary for wasting the perfume on Jesus. In verse 4, we read it. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Judas is basically saying, what a waste. And then claims the moral high ground. Could have been sold and given to the poor. Not because he actually cares about the poor. Uh, Verse 6, he didn't say this because he cared about the poor but because he was a thief, he was keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was in it. As Judas uh, takes the uh, moral high ground, he's actually hiding where his heart's at. <laughs> Not only doesn't he care for the poor, he doesn't seem to care that much for Jesus either, but he certainly cares for money, cares uh, whether he's stealing it or getting it later for betraying Jesus. But before we have a go at Judas, uh, Judas here, I mean, who hasn't done 
a little bit of virtue signalling of their own. Hmm? And hypocritically so. Who hasn't taken the moral high ground all the while engaging in a deeper sin of our own? Like judging someone for things they've said while happily gossiping about them and everyone else. Like confessing to a lesser sin to look humble and keep others from inquiring about a greater sin of ours. Like being the first to apologise and make up with someone while you're still hating them in your heart. Or asking someone to forgive you for getting something uh, that you never really forgot. Or admitting you didn't tell the whole truth when in fact you straight out and out lied. It's easier to take the moral high ground and look all pious uh, rather than face up to your own hypocrisy because that's, that's embarrassing, that's shameful. And so some would rather die than be exposed, which seems to be the case with Judas, which is the slippery slope after it thought that this interaction here uh, the, between Judas and Mary and Jesus, it's thought that this gets Judas to first seriously start thinking about betraying Jesus, which is the slippery slope to him falling beyond salvation into despair and death, a slippery slope that we don't want to go now. Because maybe like this, by constantly taking the moral high ground or always wanting to come across as more pious and religious than the next person, we, we start to believe our own self-righteous spin. You know, that, that others never measure up. That any show of love for Jesus from these others, it's indulgent or suspect. Which can slip into a cynical life that ends in death without hope. So let's not respond to Jesus with this kind of self-righteous and cynical attitude and, and miss out on enjoying intimacy with Jesus. Instead, let's respond as Mary does, which is nothing short of adoring him. Adoring Jesus. Adoring him for what he's done for her and who he is. That he's the one who gave her back her dead brother. The one who has power over death. She saw it. The one who is her friend. The one who's given her life in more than one sense. And she extravagantly loves him for all this by perfuming his feet and wiping them with her hair. She takes just over 300 mils of pure nard. 300 mils is about that much. And pure nard is very, very expensive perfume from India. How expensive at the time? Well, this 300 mils was worth a year's wages then. Uh, the average wage for full-time workers in Australia at the moment is close to 68,000 bucks. So Mary's pouring something like 68,000 bucks worth of perfume on Jesus' feet here. It's an extravagant act of love and devotion. She adores Jesus, regardless of the cost, money or socially. As John notes in verse 3, what does she do? She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. What on earth were others thinking, do you think? What would you think? Maybe a little embarrassed, not wanting to watch but not being able not to, <laughs> particularly since the fragrance was filling the whole house. But Mary doesn't care what people think, or if she does, she's willing to pay the, the, the social cost to show her love and her devotion to Jesus. Of all the responses to Jesus in this passage, Mary's the one that we're to admire the one we're to aspire to as she adores Jesus for who he is and for what he's done for her. 
which was considerably less than what we know of Jesus now, this side of his crucifixion and resurrection. Indeed, the glories of God's forgiveness and redemption and adoption that are ours through faith in Jesus is the envy of angels. As the Apostle Peter says elsewhere, angels long to look, long to know what we know in Jesus. Like Mary, we're not just servants, we're not just servants of Jesus, we're his friends. Like Mary, we know his power to raise the dead. More than that, that he rose from the dead himself to show that his death was for our sins and for our forgiveness. More than that, we know he's given us his Holy Spirit to live in us. More than that, we know the Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus and to each other as God's family. More than that, we know God as Father and can intimately call on him as Abba, Dad. The angels don't know this. And we have all this and more, all because of Jesus. We have more reason than Mary back then to be thankful. Thankful to our humble, powerful king who came to die for us. Thankful enough to be moved to adore him and to show him our love and our devotion. So have we? Do we? Can we point to anything recently where we've spent our time, our money, or our love on Jesus and spend it in such a way that others looking on might think we're being wasteful or reckless or embarrassing? That maybe we can't afford that tech upgrade all our friends are getting because we gave a heap of money to a missionary instead? That maybe we don't get to the the grades or results that everyone expects from us because we spent more time reading the Bible to know Jesus better personally. Then maybe we turn down more money or even give up a job or give up holidays or experiences or opportunities in this world that we, that we maybe go all out on loving someone from church here that we don't really know, having them into our home, giving them our time and our heart because we're committed to, to showing our love and our de- devotion for Jesus. Not because we feel we should, certainly not because we're virtue signalling, but because we're grateful to Jesus for all he's done for us and who he is, our humble, powerful king come to die for us. And so I'm going to pray now that we'd know God's goodness to us in Jesus afresh to that end. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for Jesus. And that as our powerful yet humble king coming to suffer and die for us so that we might be forgiven, we know the riches of life with you. We know and have all the blessings in the heavenly realm. We are so privileged. We are the envy of angels. Please help us to continue to ponder and take on board into our hearts the goodness and wonder of the Lord Jesus, of his death, of his resurrection, of the glories that are due to those who trust in him and out of gratitude spend our lives extravagantly and 
with great devotion on him. Loving and adoring him. Fill our hearts with gratitude so that we do this because we love him and want to adore him. Not just because he deserves it. And we pray this in his name. Amen.